Well, welcome. We are in our sermon series, The Story of Everything, which is tracking along with the E100 Daily Bible Reading Challenge. It's 20 weeks of five readings apiece, and each week covers a particular topic. A preaching series is tracking the E100 readings by preaching on one of the readings that will be done in the upcoming week and giving us some framing to the groups of the readings that we're encountering. And we're taking the, the Bible as a whole. We're going from, from start to finish, 100 essential readings of Scripture. So last week was in the beginning, and on Sunday we heard Bishop Jenny preach on the creation and work. And if you followed along with the E100 readings this week, uh, you'll have encountered stories from the beginning of time. The creation of the world, the, the defining sin of humanity, the, the judgment of God in the flood, the covenant with Noah, the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel. Stories that aren't necessarily literal historical accounts, but which are inspired by God, which are the word of God, that give us a sense of who God is and who we are and where we come from. And in the week ahead, in the week that we're about to enter, the readings are about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs, the founding fathers of the Israelites, the Jewish people, they lived roughly 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC. We're talking about the beginnings of recorded history here. Abraham the father, Isaac his son, and Jacob his son. Jacob who will have 12 sons from whom the 12 tribes of Israel will descend. So why are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob part of the essential 100 readings in the Bible? Why do they get a whole week one-twentieth of our attention in the E100 challenge? Well, it's because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the whole world, precisely because he was the Messiah, the chosen Savior of Israel, Israel, which is God's chosen people. In other words, God's love for the world doesn't just suddenly begin when Jesus shows up. Rather, Jesus is the culmination of a long history of God's love in and for the world through God's people, Israel. And though God is love, has, has always been love, Jesus is in many ways the answer to a promise that God first made explicit to Abraham. A promise which was extended to and carried through Abraham's son Isaac and then to Jacob and the children of Jacob who was also known as Israel. And so that's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are essential. In fact, we could spend weeks on them and not begin to do them justice. That's how important they are. Because in the founding fathers of Israel, we see the origin of God's promises and God's faithfulness to those promises that eventually culminate in Jesus to the blessing, to the salvation of the whole world. So that's what you're going to read about this week in E100, God's promise that leads to Jesus it's going to be a great week. But today, today we're going to focus on Abraham because he's where it all starts. The story of Abraham runs across a dozen chapters in the book of Genesis, that first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 12 to 24. And if you have the time to read the whole thing this week, do it, do it because it's incredible stuff. But the highlights selected for E100 drill down on two particular moments in Abraham's life that epitomize God's faithfulness. The first is God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
Abraham, at that point, in his, in our, like in our reading today, he's called Abram. How he got the name Abraham is another story. The Bible's amazing. Anyway, Abraham, who is Abram at that point, is just a random guy hanging around in Ur of the Chaldeans, or what's present-day southern Iraq. And then out of nowhere, God talks to him. The Bible doesn't tell us why God picked Abram, just that he did, which is bonkers when you think about it. Because here's the God of the universe, bigger than big, suddenly talking to this one guy, smaller than small, in this one time, in this one place. And what God says to Abram is this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, leave home and family, and I'll give you a new home and a new family, and I'll bless you and your family, and here's the kicker, and through your family, all families will be blessed. Now, if you're a Christian, you think that that blessing, the blessing of the whole earth, all the families, happened through Jesus the Christ, a descendant of Abraham, the Messiah and Savior of all Abraham's children. So in Genesis 12, Abram up and goes. He, he leaves home with his wife Sarai and his extended household, and he travels to what's present-day Israel and Palestine. And I have to skip over a lot of the story here because we only have so much time, but the upshot is that decades pass, and Abram does really well for himself. He does really well. He gets rich, and he gets powerful. But he and Sarai, they don't have a child, and they get old. They get too old to have kids. And that's what brings us to our reading today in Genesis 15. Because a family for Abram, that was the core of God's promise back in old Ur of the Chaldeans. That's why he had come home. That's why he'd left home. His bank account might be flush, that's great, but if there's no family, then the God who called Abram was really just a voice in his head. And if there's no kid, then Abram's life has been a lie. He's built his life on a promise that never existed in the first place. And so we come to Genesis 15. What we're seeing here in the, in the reading that we, we heard this morning that, that J.J. read for us, and I encourage you to, to follow along uh, in, in your Bible, on your, on your app. What we're seeing here in Genesis 15 is, is God doing a sort of check-in with Abram on the status of the promise that he'd made to him. Because it's not at all clear to Abram, at least, how this promise is going to be kept. He and his wife are physically too old to have children, and he needs some reassurance. And so this divine check-in, this reaffirmation of vows, so to speak, happens in two stages. The first is told in the first six verses of the passage we just heard, verses 1 to 6, and the second is told in 7 to 21. Okay, so first things first, verses 1 to 6. So after these things, verse 1, that's referring to a military victory. Abram's just won in the previous chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and tries to reassure Abram. Fear not, I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. But verse 2, Abram talks back to God. It's the first time, uh, scripture at least, it's the first time we see it happening at least. The first time in his life that scripture shows us talking back to God. He's gone decades doing what God said. He's never talked back until now because the promise seems unbelievable. So maybe he's testing it. Like, all right, let's have a little chat, me and the voice. Because if it's God, maybe I still get a kid. And if it's not God, then who cares what I say to it? Desperate men don't mince words. 
And he says, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? The implication, I, I continue to the grave. I'm dying this way. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no kids, and a member of my household will be my heir. Remember, Abram has vast wealth. This is not a nuclear family. He's not living in, you know, his little apartment with his wife. He has an extended household that includes many, many people. And Eliezer would have been Abram's most senior servant, sort of a cross between a chief of staff and a property manager. The likeliest character to take all of Abram's wealth if he dies. And no offense to Eliezer, but Abram's not hoping to leave his property to his butler. But then in verse 4, God talks back. He says, no, no, your very own son will be your heir. Your very own son. And then God says, come on outside, look at the night sky. He says, look at the stars. You see those stars? And have you ever been up north, like away from the light pollution of the city, and the, you, you go outside and the stars are so thick, they look like someone spilled flour on an indigo tablecloth? This was like that. Number the stars, God says. That's how your offspring are going to be. And here's verse 6, arguably one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. Abram believed the Lord and God reckoned, God credited it, God counted it as righteousness. This is a fundamental theological tenet of Christianity. That our faith, our trust in God counts for us as the righteousness that all of us, all of us, I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you, the righteousness that all of us lack. Because none of us is good enough, but all of us can believe. And our belief, our trust in God is credited as righteousness. Our belief makes us good. And Abram is the first to do it, to believe like this. In a real way, he's the father of faith. Well, that is a very pleasant story, but now it gets dark and weird. Now we're looking at verses 7 to 21. So some time has passed actually, since those first six verses that we heard. Maybe it's just the next day. We don't know. But verse 6 happened at night, and if you glance down to verse 12, you see it talking about the sun setting. So we're talking about two days here in verses 1 to 6 and 7 to 21. And here uh, in verse 7, God is talking to Abram again. He's affirming the other part of the promise that he made when he called Abram way back when, that the land would belong to his children. And this was important because Abram lived in an unstable world. Entire people groups could be displaced and erased. And in that sense, maybe not so much has changed. And if Abram didn't have children, there's nobody to inherit. But if God did keep the promise about offspring, were they going to have a place? That really mattered. So here in verse 8, like verse 2, we see Abram talking back. How will I know? How can I know that my offspring are going to possess the land? I believed you about I've believed you about the inheritance, but how will I know that my offspring are going to possess the land? And God tells him what to do. And bear with me here because this gets extra. God tells Abram to bring to God five animals, a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And what that means, bring to me, is sacrifice. So Abram does it. He kills the animals and he cuts them in half lengthwise and he spreads the halves apart and he puts the birds opposite each other. And let's be real, this is unpleasant to think about. This violates about like a dozen municipal health codes and federal statutes about animal protection. But this is also 4,000 years ago, so let's park our judgment for a minute and figure out what's going on. What Abram's doing here was a form of ancient ritual that established a covenant, a binding commitment between two parties. 
they'd cut animals in two and then both parties would walk between them and say, may it be to me like these animals if I break the promise. The verb for making a covenant, a binding agreement, was literally to cut. You cut a covenant. So when Abram says, how do I know I get the land? And God says, go get the animals. God's saying, let's make this official. Now, does God need animal sacrifice to make a serious promise? No. Was that how Abram's culture made serious promises? Yes. So God bent down to Abram to promise the way that mattered to Abram. Like how to make a super duper promise with a kid. You'd spit in your palm and shake their hand even though that's totally gross. So Abram gets the animals ready, but then what? To seal the deal, both parties are supposed to walk through the gap, through the blood. But where's God? Time passes, enough that vultures find the scent and Abram has to chase them off. Maybe hours? Just Abram sitting by a ditch full of blood, wondering what on earth he's doing? Doubting, maybe? And then dusk comes. Verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. This sleep, it's not like a natural sleep. The connotation here is more like medical anesthesia. And a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. He's asleep, but he's aware. He, it's a waking dream. You've ever, have you ever dreamed like that? Been, a, been asleep, but also awake and scared. He can hear and he can see the Lord. And God says, your offspring will be enslaved in a foreign land and they will suffer but I will not forget them and I will judge and I will bring them out in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Whoa, what a hard saying this is. Because God's saying he'll take care of Abram's children, but their journey's not going to be without pain. And the Amorites, the idea that there would be a people of increasing wickedness and it needed to be complete, that they needed to descend to the depths of where they were going as a people before the Israelites displaced them, along with every other nation mentioned in the last verses. Well, gosh, that's hard for us to hear. Because nothing about this scene is hospitable to the way that we are inclined to think or talk about God and our society today. Our popular notions of divinity that align so perfectly with the therapeutic goals of our society. I could never believe in a God who would do, you know, insert thing I don't like. So we might like a God who shows us a dream of the stars like verse 6, but not so much the God who appears in this nightmare of darkness and blood and fear. This God speaking of slavery and judgment of generations living and dying without satisfaction. And yet here is the God of the Bible. Here is the God of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I find this strangely comforting. Because it tells me that God doesn't simply show up when things are good and clean and you've got a good view of the night sky. And I thank God for that because most of life is neither good nor clean. We gather to worship on land stolen by genocide, inspired and justified precisely by the example of the children of Israel who displaced the nations to claim their territory. The walls of our church are marked with the remembrance of just a few of the millions, millions who died in the wars of the last century. A God who ran from blood and fear would steer well clear of earth. But this story shows us a God who is with us and in our midst from the beginning. A God who passes 
as smoke and fire through the blood-filled ditch of human history, the terrifying darkness of our history, just as he's eventually going to lead the children of Abraham out of Egypt, a pillar of smoke guiding them by day, a pillar of fire by night, a God who cuts a covenant of faithfulness and takes all of it on himself. Takes it on himself because do you notice that Abram never does his part. He never walks through the animals. He never cuts the covenant. He's, he's struck senseless. He's terrified. He's overcome. He's, he's overcome by the God who says, I will be faithful to what I have spoken. Overcome by the God who, as Scripture elsewhere says, swore by himself because he had nothing greater to swear by. Overcome by the God who is not safe and not comfortable, but true. And Abram believed he had faith He had faith. Scripture says elsewhere that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by faith, Abram and his children followed God outside of what was comfortable and what was safe. And they died in faith, Scripture says, having seen the things promised and greeted them from afar. Isn't that a lovely image? They greeted the promise from afar like a long-missed loved one running up the front walk to your door. And Scripture says they didn't receive the things promised without faith because God willed that without us, those who would come after, they should not be made complete. I want you to hear that today. 4,000 years ago, God was waiting for you. This is the God of the Bible, and this is the story that the Bible invites you into. The Bible that we're reading through is not a book you hold It's a world, it's a word that holds you. So open it this week and ask, just ask that the God who showed up for Abram would be present in a living way for you. Because this God kept the promises he made to Abram. He gave him a child, Isaac. He gave his offspring land and he did all this in the unfathomable outworking of his love for creation that in the fullness of time, God might bring forth Jesus into the world, Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh who walked through the slaughter and blood and dirt of humanity, who cut a new covenant in his own flesh, where the promise of Abram would finally be made good, where the promise would fulfill to overflowing. The promise of a line, the children of Abram, children by faith as innumerable as the stars, and the promise of land, this eternal home with God. That is a promise thousands of years old that is a promise for you promises kept and more than kept, promises to be trusted beyond your wildest imaginings. Amen.